Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 53, The New Model Army. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Joshua Prisman, Earl of Dumfries, and Beau Baron Rydeng. Like all of the patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw how the Earl of Essex, through overconfidence, faulty intelligence, and faulty intelligence, got the main parliamentary field army trapped at the Cornish town of Loswithiel. Essex then won his place among the great military leaders of history, Caesar, Belisarius, Mehmed the Conqueror, by bravely sailing away from the debacle and leaving a subordinate to take the fall and come to terms with Charles I. The disaster of Loswithiel was soon followed by the missed opportunity of the Second Battle of Newbury. Essex only receives limited blame for this because he was off sick, but his subordinate commanders, the Earl of Manchester, Sir William Waller, Oliver Cromwell, and the ramshackle executive committee imposed on the army by Parliament, came up with an overcomplicated strategy. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the King and his royalists held off a two-pronged parliamentary assault, surviving with minimal casualties until they escaped the net in the night. Accusations were flying. Accusations of treachery, of incompetence, of not fighting to win, of aiming for a place in the post-war government. Parliament was winning this war. Marston Moore had assured the conquest of the North, and the Royalists were now restricted to the English Southwest, Midlands, and most of Wales. But the King was still fighting, and if these divisions within parliamentary ranks weren't dealt with, Charles could one day march triumphantly through the streets of London, and have all their heads on spikes. Something had to change. After the Second Battle of Newbury, the two sides prepared to stand down for winter. After Newbury II and Loswithiel, the Royalists were reinvigorated. Things were still looking bad for the King, 
Parliament controlled two-thirds of England, about a third of Wales, and most of the major cities and ports, but the king was still determined to win an outright victory. Prince Rupert, despite Marston Moor, still enjoyed his uncle's support, and he was appointed Lord General of his armies. His brother Maurice and Lord Goring were both moved to the Welsh and Western armies respectively. With those changes, the king put his army into winter quarters and maybe clapped his hands in a job-well-done kind of way. He'd reorganised his military, ready for the next campaign season, and such was the centralised state of the royalist military that he could have done all this with a few letters and stamps of the Great Seal. Across the lines, Parliament also reorganised their forces, but it was a far more involved process than it had been for Charles. Where the Royalists had a unified command structure, with the undeniable authority of the King at its top, Parliament was... well, it was Parliament. Parliament's chain of command was less of a chain and more a tangled mess of frayed rope. Essex was overall commander, but his subordinates had far more individual autonomy, with a tendency to take orders from Essex or from Parliament as suggestions. Manchester certainly did so, which we can see in his relaxed march south after Marston Moor. To justify his cautious approach to the war, Manchester famously told the frustrated Cromwell that, quote, If we beat the king ninety-nine times, yet he is king still, and so will his posterity be after him. But if the king beats us once, we shall all be hanged, and our posterity will be made slaves. This was not a good enough excuse for Cromwell. Adding to these issues was the reliance on the county militias and the trained bands of the towns. With some exceptions, these soldiers were reluctant to travel far from their homes, were unwilling to accept the conditions and discipline which some among the parliamentary leadership, Cromwell especially, believed was necessary to win the war. That was just in the purely military hierarchy. Because if there's one thing Parliament loves, it's committees. The overall parliamentary executive was the Committee of Both Kingdoms, which had replaced the Committee of Safety. But on top of this, MPs and Lords sat on multiple overlapping committees, which oversaw supplies, discipline, training, recruitment, procurement, and even, such as at Newbury too, military commands. These committees, and the men who controlled them, jostled for influence, for resources, for power, to grant these to their allies or deprive them from their rivals. It was a mess, and that's before you get into factions, but more on that later. After Newbury too, the House of Commons summoned their commanders to London to explain what the hell just happened. Cromwell and Waller rushed back to the capital. They'd previously complained to Parliament about the conduct of Essex and Manchester. Waller had been doing just that, as Essex obliviously ran headfirst into the Cornish trap, and now their failures had become too much to bear. Waller and Essex had serious personal differences, and their rivalry had only grown as the war had gone on, with Waller's successes and Essex's failures. And we've seen how their dispute had repeatedly hurt Parliament's war effort. For Cromwell and Manchester, their relationship had similarly crashed on the rocks of war, and Cromwell openly disagreed with his superior's cautious approach to the conflict. But especially clear is that the divisions within the Eastern Association army 
owed plenty to religious differences. Manchester was a full-throated supporter of the Scottish Alliance, and the Eastern Association Army was joined by Major General Crawford, a Covenanter general with very clear opinions of independency. Cromwell viewed the strict uniformity of Scottish Presbyterianism as little better than Laudianism. Both persecuted dissident beliefs. If they won this war, and as far as Cromwell was concerned, if the same incompetent men stayed in office, that was a big if, then what would they win? What were they fighting for? They'd simply swap one rigid system of spiritual conformity with another. But those had been the terms of the Scottish Alliance, and the Solemn League and Covenant was very clear that any incendiary who threatened this should be considered a traitor. Keep that in mind. On the 25th of November, Cromwell and Waller presented their cases to Parliament. Waller repeated his earlier claims against Essex, only now, after Loswithiel and Newbury too, his complaints received more eager ears. Cromwell's issue was with Manchester, and he laid out clearly how his incompetence at Marston Moor had nearly lost Parliament the battle, and how his incompetence at Newbury too had lost them the battle. Cromwell declared to the House of Commons that, quote, His lordship's continued backwardness to all action, his averseness to engagement, or what tends thereto, his neglecting of opportunities, and declining to take or pursue advantages upon the enemy, and this, in many particulars, contrary advice given to him, contrary to commands received, and when there had been no impediment or other employment for his army, end quote. In other words, Manchester was, at best, an incompetent commander whose caution was delaying Parliament's victory, or at worst, actively restraining his army to avoid an outright defeat for the king in the hope of future advancement. The two earls were not about to take these attacks lying down. On the 28th of November, Manchester made his statement in the Lords, defending his conduct throughout the campaigning season, and attacking Cromwell as a radical in both religion and politics. His aim was to disarm Cromwell's charges against him, of being militarily incompetent, by reversing the attack. In actual fact, Manchester argued, Cromwell was a radical independent, whose independency was a threat to the war effort and the Scottish alliance, and it was this that was the chief motivation for Cromwell's attacks on himself. To justify his position, Manchester reported that Cromwell had called the Assembly of Divines persecutors who persecuted honester men than themselves. Manchester warned that Cromwell could as soon draw his sword against them as against any in the king's army. His radicalism was not limited to religion either. Manchester informed the House of Lords that Cromwell's, quote, expressions were sometimes against the nobility, end quote, and that he, quote, hoped to live to see never a nobleman in England. Cromwell's radicalism was apparently spreading to his troops, and Manchester warned that, quote, in case there should be any conclusion of a peace, such as might not stand with those ends that honest men should aim at, this army might prevent such as mischief. The Earl went on, defending in detail the charges of incompetency, cowardice, and generally poor leadership which Cromwell had accused him of. In fact, it had been Cromwell who was responsible for the failure of Newbury too, and it was Cromwell who had refused to send his cavalry to guard against the king's return at Donington Castle. 
He was the one actively hampering the war effort due to his political and religious radicalism, and he should be removed from command as soon as possible. Manchester then had his statement printed and sent to both houses on the 2nd of December. Meanwhile, Essex prepared his own attack against Cromwell. He met with the Scottish commissioners and attempted to convince them that Cromwell was clearly a radical incendiary who was threatening the unity of the two kingdoms, and according to the Solemn League and Covenant, was therefore a traitor. The Earl of Loudoun, the Lord Chancellor of Scotland and one of the Scottish commissioners, was sympathetic to Essex's charges. Quote, Ye ken very well that Lieutenant General Cromwell is nae friend of ours, and since the advance of our army into England, he hath used all underhand and cunning means to take off from our honour and merit of this kingdom. End quote. But the charges didn't stick. Politically, Essex didn't have the support he needed in the Commons to bring down a celebrated officer on charges of treason. Legally, the commissioners consulted their lawyers, and in their opinion the case had little chance of success, and it wasn't worth the political cost to try. Cromwell learnt of this legal attack against him, and that it had crashed and burned, and it only pushed him on. When the Earl of Manchester's statement was read in the Commons on the 4th of December, Cromwell attended, and, after disputing the attacks against him, added more to his charges against Manchester, as well as raising the question of whether Manchester had violated parliamentary procedure by responding to charges which had only ever been made in the Commons, and had not yet been presented to the Lords. By raising this potential breach, Cromwell forced the House to appoint a committee, because they love committees, to rule on the issue. In a masterful stroke, which perhaps betrays how close to home Manchester's charges had hit, Cromwell had defended himself from the charges, presented more of his own, and then used parliamentary procedure to block any further debate on the matter until the committee concluded. The last word had been Cromwell's. This dispute was quickly escalating into a potential breach between the Commons and the Lords. Possibly as a genuine attempt to calm the confrontation before it split the parliamentary cause, or possibly as a clever ploy by the war faction in Parliament, who believed that the King had to be militarily defeated, and that neither Essex nor Manchester were committed to his defeat, the House of Commons passed the self-denying ordinance on the 19th of December. This would require the resignation of all members of Parliament and Lords from their military and civil positions. By removing the MPs and Lords from the military, this would separate the two spheres of politics and war, and allow each to focus on their objectives without distraction. That was all very well, but it struck at the heart of aristocracy in England. The nobles had always fought. Always. It was their raison d'etre. Even with the centralisation and disarming of the nobility under the Tudors, the honour of leading armies, the positions of Lord Lieutenant, were the traditional domains of the great families of the kingdom. So, unsurprisingly, the House of Lords did not like this ordinance. On the 13th of January 1645, the Lords rejected the self-denying ordinance. But the self-denying ordinance was only one half of the plan. The ordinance would also mean the centralisation of the military. Militias 
and trained bands across the kingdom, who had been raised and led by parliamentary-aligned nobility, would now fall under a central authority. Earlier in the year, in criticising the execution of the war, Waller had proposed a new modelling of the parliamentary army, where regional armies and militias would be brought together under a single national army dedicated to winning the war, wherever they needed to fight. No more individual commands, no more local militias refusing to march far from home. A professional, national army was needed. Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire author George R. Martin has been inspired by a variety of writers, from Shakespeare to Tolkien to Lovecraft, but an influence on him that's arguably even greater is real-world history. The conflict between the Starks and Lannisters has a lot in common with the Wars of the Roses that began with the Yorks and Lancasters, for example. HBO is premiering House of the Dragon Season 1. Set 200 years before Game of Thrones, it features a civil war reminiscent of the Anarchy, which came to the UK when King Henry I died without a living son. History of Westeros podcast has been obsessively putting out episodes on this and all sorts of related topics for 10 years now. Books and shows. All of it. Sometimes with prepared discussions, sometimes with a script, sometimes with both. We have interviews with the people most involved, like George R. R. Martin himself and showrunner Ryan Condal. George has said he designed his books to be read over and over. So, we have. You can find us on any podcast or video platform. That's right. Check out History of Westeros podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you watch videos. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On New Year's Eve 1644, Parliament voted to form a new army of 16,000 infantry, with two-thirds musketeers and a last third pikemen, 8,000 cavalry, and 1,500 dragoons. Though after the stern realities of men and money took their toll, it was 14,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry instead. Still a significant force. It would be made up by merging the armies of Essex, Manchester, and Waller into a single army. At this point, 
there were several other parliamentarian armies totalling around 60 to 70,000 men, who would gradually, over the years, merge with this new force. The question was, who would lead this army? This new model of army? Whether or not the Lords approved the self-denying ordinance, Essex was out of the running. He was too controversial, too tepid, and he'd already been given command of multiple armies already. Even as the Lords disputed the new model ordinance, the Commons appointed the young, experienced, and successful Sir Thomas Fairfax. He was, unlike essentially every other notable officer in the parliamentary armies, neither a peer in the House of Lords, or an elected member of Parliament in the Commons. He came from a respectable family, he was a political and religious moderate, but his wife was a Presbyterian, and he had worked happily with the Covenanter Scots under Leven. His men loved him, he was a proactive and energetic commander, but he was also able to take orders, and appeared to have little political ambition of his own. To put it simply, he was the perfect choice to lead this new model army, to ignore the factions and egos, and to win this war. His infantry commander was another officer we've met before, Sir Philip Skippen, the lucky guy left holding the bag at Loswithiel while Essex rode away to safety. He was, like Fairfax, a moderate, with military skill and experience. He would command the infantry. Now, you might be wondering, if Fairfax is in overall command and Skippen commanded the infantry, who was going to lead the cavalry? If only there was an accomplished cavalry officer who was just as determined to win the war as Fairfax and Skippen. If only. Oh well. The position of Lieutenant General of Horse was clearly earmarked for Oliver Cromwell, but his attacks on Manchester and Essex, and his criticism of Presbyterianism and his clear preference for independency, made him temporarily toxic to the House of Lords and to a decent portion of the Commons. Plus, he was an MP, and the self-denying ordinance would require his own self-denial. All of this, the self-denying ordinance, the establishment of the new model army, the appointment of Fairfax and Skippen to its command, had been rejected by the Lords. They wanted Manchester to be the overall commander. Again, Essex had burned his bridges, and they were holding out for this. The Commons Committees, which were investigating Manchester, laid out their case on the 15th of January, and the Lords Committee to investigate Cromwell had violated parliamentary privilege. Not only had Manchester's published statement in December covered claims made in the privacy of Parliament, a violation of privilege, but by investigating a member of the Commons without the permission of the Commons, they had crossed the boundaries of the ancient constitution of England, and also violated parliamentary privilege. How very dare they! On the 15th of February, the Lords backed down over the new model ordinance, and the army was officially created, though Fairfax had already started mustering the army by this point. But the self-denying ordinance was still blocked by the upper house, until the king intervened. Back in November 1644, a new set of peace proposals were drafted and sent to Oxford. This latest attempt at a compromise peace came about by pressure from the Peace Party, with support from the Scottish commissioners. A negotiated peace was looking like their best chance to enforce the terms of the Solemn League and Covenant. 
If the war continued, and the king won, they'd be lucky to keep their heads, never mind complete the reformation of the English church. If the war continued, and Parliament decisively won, the growing influence of the independents might mean a peace contrary to the Solemn League and Covenant. But if the king could be brought to the table, and a favourable compromise achieved, it would sway the moderates who were neither party of Presbyterian or independent, or peace or war. Peace was a convincing reason to overlook any elements the middle group disliked. The negotiations opened at Uxbridge on the 29th of January, 1645. So, during the parliamentary crisis over the new model army, the self-denying ordinance, and the Cromwell-Manchester controversy. The Duke of Richmond led the Royalists at this conference, the Earl of Northumberland, the Parliamentarians, and the Earl of Loudoun, the Scottish Covenanters. For a faction that truly desired peace, they clearly hadn't learnt anything from their previous attempts at negotiation. The opening demands were completely unacceptable to Charles, and surely they must have known that. The Solemn League and Covenant would be sworn by everyone in the kingdom, from the king down. Episcopacy in all three kingdoms would be abolished. The parliaments of England and Scotland would command the English and Scottish military, and they would take the lead in the continuing war in Ireland. And another royal prerogative would be stripped away. The monarch's foreign policy would require the consent and supervision of both parliaments. Charles would have been, let's say, resistant to these proposals in the best of circumstances, and neither the English Parliament nor the Covenanters were in the best of circumstances. We've just seen the disaster at Loswithiel and the King's success at Newbury too. At this time, Montrose was in the middle of his year of victories, the Battle of Inverlochy, the great humbling of the Marquess of Argyll, the effective leader of Covenanted Scotland, took place just days after the conference met, and news of the Royalist victory stiffened the King's resolve. He was confident that he could still win this war, or at least force a compromise that was not a complete surrender. Plus, Charles was well aware that his enemies were divided. Why abandon the cause now? when things seemed to be going his way. The talks stalled out, and on the 22nd of February, they were abandoned. This finally broke the deadlock in Parliament. The failure of the Oxbridge Treaty was a failure for the Presbyterian Peace Faction, and continuing the war, winning the war, seemed the only way forward. It took another month of negotiation, and a redrafting of the ordinance to allow officers to be reappointed after they resigned. But on the 3rd of April, the self-denying ordinance was formally passed by both Houses of Parliament. The ordinance allowed a 40-day grace period, but once that passed, the roster of parliamentary officers dramatically changed. Manchester and Essex were gone, of course, but so was the Earl of Warwick, the Lord High Admiral, as well as Sir William the Conqueror Waller, and Oliver Cromwell. Now secure in his position, Lord General Sir Thomas Fairfax continued his preparations to actually win this war. To Parliament, he sent a list of the officers he intended to appoint to his new model army, and the House of Commons debated, but ultimately approved the vast majority. The Lords, still smarting over their defeat, meddled with a third of the list, either rejecting or reassigning many of them. But the requirements of the war effort, and the start of the campaigning season, forced their submission. 
Elsewhere, there was a war going on. Royalist Sir Marmaduke Langdale, whose amazing name I've criminally underused, went on a streak of victories. He recaptured Salisbury, defeated a 2,000-strong cavalry force, and successfully relieved the siege of Pontefract Castle, defeating John Lambert's besieging force. When Langdale moved on, however, Sir Thomas Fairfax's dad, Lord Fairfax, simply moved back in and put Pontefract back under siege. Things weren't much better for the Royalists elsewhere. In the marches, Parliamentarian commander Sir William Brierton set his sights on Chester, the Royalist-held city situated near the Welsh border, and which controlled one of the few remaining Royalist ports on the Irish Sea. It was vital for communication between Royalists in England and between England and Ireland. Brierton established a fort to the city's east, cutting one of the main land routes, and established a loose cordon to half-heartedly try and starve the garrison out. But the city's access to the sea via the River Dee made this unlikely. His opponent was Prince Maurice, recently appointed to the Welsh command to replace his brother Rupert. Maurice was determined to lift the siege of Chester. Conscripting as many men as he could, he marched from Oxford to Shrewsbury. Here, he requisitioned most of the garrison. Brierton had moved to block his advance, and so Maurice manoeuvred around him, heading west into Wales, through northern Wales, and then crossing the border to the west of Chester, scaring off the cordon Brierton had left around the city. Huzzah! Well done, Maurice, you've saved the day! Except not quite. Because Brierton then sent 600 men south, who linked up with another parliamentary force, and they descended on Shrewsbury. And where was the Shrewsbury garrison? At Chester. Shrewsbury's city walls were quickly stormed, and the castle garrison surrendered a day later. Brighton arrived soon after, patched up the damage, and secured Parliament's hold over the city. The fall of Shrewsbury was a serious blow to the Royalists. It was another regional capital lost, along with the arsenal and supplies kept there. Maurice was never trusted with independent command again. Another Royalist defeat soon followed on the opposite coast. Scarborough, held by Hugh Cholmley, was captured by parliamentary forces under John Meldrum. Cholmley withdrew the garrison from the town to the castle, and he'd hold out for several months, but the town and port was now lost to the king. One silver lining which Cholmley gleefully noted was that at one point Meldrum was sighting his artillery on the castle, when a sudden wind took his hat off his head. Meldrum went to catch it, but the breeze then pushed his cloak over his head, and now blinded and off-balance, went plummeting off the cliff onto the rocks. Meldrum did survive his fall, but it must have been embarrassing for him and hilarious for the defenders. Next week, we will see the new model army in action, as the vacant position of Lieutenant General of Horse goes to a certain talented cavalry officer. He'd had to resign his position under the self-denying ordinance, but Parliament needed his skills, and an exception was made. Next time, Oliver Cromwell will once again ride to war, and prove their trust was well placed. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, Sue Bremner, Duchess of Wellington, Brandon Stansbury, Marquess of Montague, and William Pendleton, Earl of Dorset. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, 
which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Do you know a history buff who you think would enjoy the podcast? Word of mouth, personal recommendations, and sharing on social media is the best way to help a podcast grow. Thank you to everyone who has already recommended Pax Britannica. It helps keep a roof over my head, and the episode's coming. Remember to give the History of Westeros a listen if you haven't already. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.